Welcome to Recipes for Manufacturing Success in Northern Pennsylvania, featuring NWIRC's Bob Zeruda and yours truly, Robin Keller. Elk County Heat Treaters is a powdered metal secondary operation that provides heat treating, vibratory finishing, steam treating, inspection, packaging and assembly services to powdered metal manufacturers at a local and national supply level. Hey Bob, what are two attorneys, powdered metal manufacturing, two cooks in the kitchen, and a black belt in karate have in common? This podcast and our guests, Ben and Gina. That's correct. Hi, we're here with Ben and Gina Froble, and they are the owners of Elk County Heat Treaters. Well, it's great to see you again, Ben and Gina. Um, not too long ago, you were kind enough to open your doors and allow us to bring a uh, a group of uh, members of the Manufacturing Caucus of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And uh, it was really an enlightening uh, trip uh, for all. Um, some were not from your region. They were from other parts of the 13 counties that Northwest IRC serves. And um, I can tell you they were impressed as I was of your, of your business um, and your history and, and also of powdered metal. And one of the things I learned that day as we were traveling around some of the companies in your area is that powdered metal worldwide, 50% of powdered metal, the powdered metal industry uh, is in the United States. And what I heard that day was 50% of the United States PM business is in Elk County. I, I think I got that right, but that is pretty interesting. And my guess is we've got some in our audience that might not truly understand powdered metal. So. Maybe today we start with that. If you could help us just better understand powdered metal, and then we'll move into, of course, your business and what you do within the powdered metal industry, and we'll go from there. How does that sound? Sounds great. I, I appreciate that. Um, and obviously, we appreciate the opportunity to be here. We appreciate you folks coming through our, our building on the tour. It's something we're proud of. We're proud of our area. We're proud of our industry. Um, and it makes a lot of sense uh, to have exposure through groups like your own so that we can kind of shine a spotlight on that and hopefully help develop it and sharpen it into something that's a little better in the future. Um, powder metal, the, the example that I use um, is commonly a sand mold at a beach. Um, when we initially had taken over this business, a lot of friends of mine had reached out to me and said, so what is it that you're doing? And I said, we're doing powdered metal. And most people to, to them, that conjures powder coating which is basically like a spray on coating that you see on lawn furniture. And this is, this is not at all the same thing. So when you think of a beach and you're sitting with your butt in the sand, enjoying the sun and a small child's there and they take a mold and they put sand inside of a mold and they squeeze that together and they put that mold onto the beach and then pull the mold away. That's effectively what powder metal is. The only difference is we use a high tonnage press to create really small, uh, voids in between the molecules of the metal. Um, once that's completed, those parts are sintered, which creates the hardness of the part. The benefit of doing this is that it is much faster than traditional machining. So the operation can be conducted in seconds, whereas machining operations can take hours, if not uh, longer, given the complexity of a particular part. Um, while powdered metal does have disadvantages, it really shines in applications that uh, require quickness and require precision. So let's let's learn more uh, about uh, you and your history 
Uh, give give us a background on when you started this company or when you took over this company, and and so we have a better appreciation for that. Well, um, the business was initially founded in Ridgeway, Pennsylvania, um, by Jim and Jerry Lockwood, and they had been essentially had formed the business as a heat treating operation on River Road in Ridgeway. Um, that operation had subsequently relocated here to the Stackpole Complex. Um, I assume whenever North Central was involved in dividing the parcels of ground up and creating like a, a business incubator. Um, this business then moved here and was subsequently sold to Steve and Marianne Reicher, who we purchased from in 2013. So the business has a long history um, in, in the powder metal market and in what we do specifically um, dating clear back to 1987. Wow. And, but, but the, the area where you're actually located um, it, I mean, it's it's all powdered metal, right? Companies that like are all around you and that piece of property or how, how large of an area is it? The Stackpole Complex comprises about, I would guess, 15 to 20 small businesses. Again, when Stackpole inhabited this area, they were one giant juggernaut of a business, probably 1,500 employees. They subsequently filed for bankruptcy and relocated and left kind of a void here. North Central took these buildings, split them up, subdivided the area, took over a lot of the environmental covenants that were required as a result of some of the previous environmental issues, and then resold those as incubators to small business. Um, we were lucky to get involved, and we were able to inhabit a number of those buildings. We've grown since that point, um, probably 11,000 11, square feet, to pretty close to uh, I would say 70,000 square feet, give or take. Um, and I think that North Central allows all of these small uh, businesses to play a part in this manufacturing because of our relative proximity to each other and because of our proximity to our ultimate customer base. Sure. Um, powder metal is one of those industries that requires several things. It requires secondary operations similar to what we do, but it requires uh, businesses like Horizon next door that do pressing and centering. The, portion of their business that requires a secondary operation is always a percentage. So let's say 20% of their business requires parts to be heat treated. It wouldn't make sense for Horizon to develop their own heat treat section because the cost involved with doing that would be too high. That would be cost prohibitive. So what they do is they then transfer that 20% and outsource it to small operations like ours or other secondary operations. And we exist because we have you know, 10 to 20% of effectively everyone's business. For us, it's sort of like the nurse and the shark scenario, whereas we have, um, we have a symbiotic relationship that requires us to be close in proximity. And what holds us here is this, this dependence upon each other to survive. And that's what's created the unique circumstance that we see in St. Mary's. Um, if we were to relocate this business to a, a region outside of here, you would incur transportation costs that oftentimes would be in excess of what the value of our service is. So it makes sense for us to be close together. And this location inside of the Stackpole Complex helps us accomplish that. So you play obviously an, a, a very pivotal role in the supply chain of the companies that are around you and your proximity to them helps to lower costs, um, improve efficiencies, and you provide that value as part of their supply chain. Correct. And, and you know, in as much as we're dependent upon them, they also are dependent upon us. Sure. So 
when, when, when I visited and, and toured, um, I, I saw uh, technology, I saw uh, individuals that uh, were uh, uh, multi-generation and from the same family. Um, I saw uh, a certain spirit with your workforce. Um, can you talk to all that? And, and, and we've got a lot of time. So take your time, break it down and give us a feel for what makes your company special. I think the most important asset that we have, strike that. I believe and I know that the most important asset that we have are our employees. And unfortunately for me, I guess they know that too. Um, <laughs> but our business specifically uh, has a lot of individuals that have been here for a significant amount of time. And I think that's a testament to the type of workplace environment that we have. We spend a lot of time analyzing that to try to understand what works. How do we create this lightning in a bottle? How do we effectively have this? And how do we maintain it? And I think for us, it comes down to several things. And one of those is making sure that our interests align. We always say that it's paddling the same way in the same canoe. Everybody wants the same thing at the end of the day. They want to have a little bit more money in their pocket. They want to have a little better Christmas and they want to be able to go on some form of a vacation, whatever that might happen to be. And we've realized that we need to be part of that. And what that means is being in a situation where we're not trying to be a strict capitalist, but while we're able to look at the people that we employ and realize that they're people too with the same goals that I have enables us to create margins uh, in our business that allow us to have a little more of an offering for the people that work here. And I think as a result of that, they've become in a lot of ways more friends than they have employees. Now that creates its own set of difficulties because blurring that line sometimes leads to problems. But I think having conversations with people and being upfront with people as we're developing that relationship has led us to have people that not only trust us, but also seemingly enjoy where we work. Um, that in combination with the flexibility that we offer, um, I, I think leads lends itself to be a, a better employment opportunity for people. And as a result, we have a better tenure of our workforce. Mm -hmm. They work in teams very well too. That's something that we focus on. Um, you know, Ben has a, well, we have a morning huddle every day. He does a walkthrough, talks to every every single employee. How is it going? How was the shift before you? How did they leave it? So we're constantly touching base with everybody. And on top of that, we have, you know, maintenance is a huge portion. You have to do preventative maintenance on all of our equipment constantly, essentially. So our maintenance department has their own meeting once a week. You know, it's not that long, but we touch base with them to make sure that everything is happening the way that we need it to. And then the managers have a huddle up once a week with us as well. Um, on top of everything else. I mean, that's it's important for everybody to see your face and know that you know what's going on and have that mutual respect for each other. We try to reinvest not only our time, but our resources um, back into this business as much as possible because small things matter. I mean, little things that you can offer employees matter. So we try to do that um, as much as we can. I think we're doing a good job. Well, I agree that, uh... Uh, communications, I think, is critical. And, you know, employees generally want to know what's going on. They want to be involved. 
Uh, and the more you do that, and I think what I'm hearing you say is that you include them uh, in, in those regular communications. They have a very, um, uh, very large part of the success of your company because they have that opportunity. They understand what's going on and what the expectations are. And it also um, seems that uh, uh, there's a genuine, and I, I felt this when I was there, there's a genuine care, caring that is there. And I hear it from your words, but I saw it in actions and, and some of the comments that uh, your employees were sharing when I was there at your place. Well, I'm going to be honest. I can kind of tell from the uh, language that you guys are using kind of sounds like you guys are attorneys. Do you want to talk about that aspect of your life and how that happened that you met? She can cover that topic. We, I was working for the district attorney at the time. It was 2006. And um, he was a defense attorney. And we met at an arson trial. Wait a second. Now, wait, wait, wait. You you were actually in the same courtroom on opposite si or opposing sides. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I I have to say I don't think that we liked each other at first, but um, after a lot of uh, involvement with that, you know, not only that case but other cases as well. Um, he just kept showing up to my office asking me to go out to lunch. So <laughs> <laughs> the irony of the whole thing is that's her version. So my okay. skin is completely different. I'll reserve that for another time. <laughs> so uh, who won that day in court? That's what I want to know. <laughs> she did. Obviously, the, the district attorney's office with the uh, yeah. the, the might that they the have obviously had, had defeated the defense. Um, okay. So I did that for maybe 10 years. Um, and then I had an opportunity here at the Heat Treaters. Uh, Gina's parents had actually owned the business whenever we had uh, initially purchased it. And from that point until now, um, I have been completely free and clear of law. I tell people oftentimes that I'm a recovering attorney. Um, I just felt after we'd gotten married and had children that that business was not for me. Um, and I can say that I'm much happier in the circumstance that I find myself in now. And yeah. she followed suit not long after. So I um, am a civil attorney right now. I'm obviously just the general counsel for all of our businesses. Um, this one predominantly and then Sentinel where we're sitting currently. Um, but I practiced for the last eight years um, my, uh, at Verbal Verbal and Grove, which is our uh, law firm downtown. We recently closed it. My um, partner, Bo Grove, became the district attorney. So I was sort of faced with, should I at this point move into my family's business or should I try to find a new partner? And I just, it was the perfect time for me to make that, that transition. Um, our industry is involved in a lot of press metal societies. The APMI, we spend, um, we have a golf tournament in the summer. We have a seafood picnic uh, at the end of the summer. Then we have monthly meetings that are hosted throughout multiple restaurants throughout the area with talks and camaraderie uh, afterwards. And to me, that really, really is helpful. I have even my, my competitors are my friends. And while we don't share trade secrets, we discuss impacts in the market and, and things that, that affect all of us globally. And I just find that, that that's a better fit for me. This is a better circumstance. What what are some of the industries uh, that your 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 uh, your parts that you do for your customers 
Where do they go? Where do they end up? Typically um, in two places. Um, one would be lawn and garden and the second would be automotive. Um, automotive has an awful lot of regulation, which makes it very difficult to maintain. There's a lot of pressure to find cost downs to decrease uh, cost, obviously, to the ultimate supplier um, or the ultimate customer, which is you know Ford, GM, Chrysler, whomever. Um, whereas the lawn and garden, there's a little less liability um, because, again, there's a lot less safety factors involved. And lawn and garden seems to be a large portion of what we do for heat treatment. So to take back to the very beginning of our example with the sandbox and creating molds, um, Horizon next door, who, who, who are great friends, wonderful partners in industry, the whole bit. They are a company that presses and centers. And what their company does is they, again, take this metal powder and put it into these molds and under tons of pressure, squeeze this together. And then they center those parts through a centering furnace, which basically bonds the molecules. The problem with that is those gears, let's picture a bicycle gear that you would have with a chain. The gear teeth on that are not as strong as if that part was made out of steel. So what those companies do when faced with that circumstance is they have the parts heat treated. So we take the parts and we heat them up to a very high temperature and we quench them in oil. And when we do that, it creates a, a higher degree of hardness to the parts, but the parts then lend themselves to shearing. So we wash the parts off and then we temper them basically to make them softer again. And what we create at the end result is a closer form of the bicycle gear than you would get if you created it strictly out of powder metal, but it's still not as good as if you actually had machined the part. So we produce things much quicker at a much higher volume at a steeper price point um, with let's call it 90 to 95% of the characteristics that you could get um, through another formal mean. And that's, that's effectively what we do. Mm -hmm. That's a great description. I feel like I can actually visualize you making the part and I can see it in my mind. And I have not yet been to a powdered metal plant. So thank you very much for that explanation. Sure. So when you look at those two industries that you serve, the sectors of the automotive and the lawn and garden, uh, what's what's happening in those industry sectors that is uh, is something that you're really looking forward to? The growth, uh, the trends, what's what's going on? Well, automotive has us particularly frightened, um, like most people in our industry, because the big push towards electric vehicles, the the bulk of what we do here uh, goes into basically two separate components in automotive. One is a transmission component, and the second is a braking system through like ABS rings. Um, those are the two big areas that we basically find our parts in. Um, so whenever we switch into an electronic vehicle, the two things that generally are no longer necessary is a transmission and a braking system. Um, so we're, we're finding ways or our customers are finding ways to integrate our parts into things um, that those types of vehicles maybe hadn't previously been thought for. Um, so just because we found a need for this in the transmission and the braking system component assemblies doesn't mean that we can't find a use for components in another assembly that might be you know, included on these types of automobiles. So it creates some risk. There's some, some real disruptors in the market by way of electronic vehicles or electric vehicles. Um, on lawn and garden, that's also a concern 
But there's a lot of different industries that we serve through Lawn and Garden. Everything from, um, believe it or not, there's still cotton gins that pick cotton. So there are a, a large portion of business that still accommodates cotton gins, international harvesters, um, commercial establishments uh, that make um, irrigation systems clear down to zero turn lawnmowers. The bulk of what we do in those circumstances also go into transmission components. So gears for um, displacement ratios of, of, of gearing, uh, those types of, of parts, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as there's this shift and some trends that you're describing as they are taking place, you're working with your customers on new opportunities, it sounds like, to explore possibilities, new opportunities for new parts, new products, and, and, and maybe the same markets or same sectors, but different products. That's correct. Yeah. What, what, what beyond that rises to the top in terms of a challenge that you have over the next couple of years in your business? Population decline. Yeah. yeah. Employees. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big problem. Um, it's something that we discuss frequently and we, um, you know, I, I, we're just trying to come up with ideas to try and combat that in an yeah. effective way. And it's difficult because it's not, I mean, it's not just our area that's facing it, but certainly St. Mary's is dealing with population decline. Um, and it's, it's hard to get people to move here. Um, that's, that's another issue we don't have. It's not Pittsburgh. You know, it's it's still a city, um, but it's a sprawling city. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's not it's not a um, it's just not a typical city setup, I guess. And so um, that that makes it difficult. But uh, finding employees, I think every business is struggling with that right now. We see it in all of our businesses, um, and just finding people who actually want to work. So you know, we would never. I mean, we don't we don't want to lose jobs ever. But when you can't fill a job, you know, you certainly start looking at things like automation and other ways to, to kind of fill in the gaps um, for, you know, specific processes or things that are a continuous process that um, are jobs that are harder to fill. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, certainly, you know, it's a challenge we hear uh, throughout the region uh, with regards to the, 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 the tight labor that's, uh, that exists and, and uh, the population condition has been certainly taking its toll over some time. Uh, you mentioned automation. Can you expand a little bit on that as to some of the things maybe you have done or are looking at uh, to uh, to take advantage of uh, automation? A lot of the folks in workforce development and MIA, I know Eric Wolf has had a huge hand in, is analyzing this trend and these issues. And I think based on recent data that I've seen is we're seeing a 6% increase in the PM market. Um, and in addition to that, we're seeing year over year, basically a three tenths of a point decline in population in Elk County. So what that means is as sales increase over time and as population and workforce decreases over time, there's going to be a finite point somewhere in the future where we hire the very last person. And what do we do as industry to survive that so that we don't effectively have to completely shut down or completely renovate the way that we do business. And as Gene had said, the obvious answer to that is some form of automation. 
the downside of that is that basically eliminates the job that a lot of the people here functionally fulfill. Um, now we're replacing that job with with someone who's got a skilled labor, someone who's got a skilled training and background, but it also doesn't do everything for the community that effectively businesses like ours and many of them around here do. Um, automation on our end, things that we're looking for are increasing loading patterns, um, the, the continuous furnace that we have here. Uh, basically, heat treating is a three-step process. You heat the parts up, you quench them in oil, uh, and then you temper them. This furnace does all of those steps at one time, uh, from loading to unloading. Uh, you put the parts into a hopper, and it dumps them out in a barrel. So, so those types of things we're moving towards that eliminates the needs for someone to touch or handle parts multiple times. Uh, I think for us, a lot of simple things, loading, unloading, uh, that type of automation is key. Uh, some of the furnaces that we're looking at have a high degree of automation is even on our batch systems so that we have laser guided loading so that uh, charge cars, which are basically the rail cars that move the product back and forth between the furnaces, uh, does it automatically with the, without having to have an operator physically make that transition. Um, those types of things are what we're looking for. That clear back to very simplified things. It doesn't have to be a major capital expenditure. So maybe it's something as simple as just reanalyzing the layout of your buildings and making sure that you're making the best use out of your footprint. Um, perhaps if you're not putting things in the proper place, you're actually creating more work for people and thereby increasing the amount of people that you're relying on. So it's just those simple things that we're looking at. Um, for instance, if you have a need for a mop in your kitchen because you have a tile floor, but you always keep that mop upstairs in your bedroom, you're obviously going to mop less, or it's gonna take you lots more time to do the mopping. Um, those, those are the type of analysis that we're looking at on a day-by-day -day basis. Wow, good good stuff. A lot of lean manufacturing in there. I can, <laughs> I can you know, and, and explain it the, the best way is that, you know, you're looking at waste, you're looking at inefficiencies, you're looking at the little things, I think Gina said it before, little things matter, um, wh whether it's pertaining to your, your employees or to your processes, little things do matter and they add up. So we have a, a sister company, Sentinel Industries, which is located directly across the street. Um, and Sentinel is a, uh, an inspection company that basically does inspection assembly, uh, packaging, those types of things. And Sentinel, we have a labor force that we've sort of opened up to come and go. So if if you have a specific reason that you can't be to work at eight o'clock in the morning and you let folks know that and you happen to come in at 10, instead of leaving at your normal time, you can stay two hours later. We allow people to switch to second shift. We allow people to work on weekends. And I think that flexibility really allows people to spend more time with their families and as a result leads people to be happier. Um, I think a lot of that for me personally is I grew up the son of a coal miner. And my father worked for a large coal mine that had a swing shift situation. And my father would work two work two weeks on first shift, one week on second shift, and one week on what they characterized as hudao. And what that meant for me practically as a child was when I got home from school, that meant I wasn't going to see my dad for two weeks. And that really bothered me as a person. So this circumstance gives us the flexibility to help people avoid that circumstance. Um, 
The heat treaters is a little different because we have requirements based on furnaces. We don't control a piece count. We have to control furnaces. But what I can say is if anybody comes to us with a situation, we allow people to switch shifts. We allow people to fill in for each other on shifts. Um, we overlook a lot because of personnel uh, issues that might arise, health of family members, death of family members, things like that. We try to be as flexible as possible so that we can afford people the best quality of life possible because being inflexible in what you're doing is the first way to convince someone that you really don't care and invite them right out the door. And for us, it matters both personally, because again, I have this personal connection to that. And it also matters because every day when I'm meeting with these people, I have to look them in the eye and I have to realize not only are they people and equals of mine, but quite literally, I'm just employing them. And that doesn't make me any different than it makes them. So if I was the type of person that I wouldn't be comfortable with that, then I can't expect my employees to be okay with it either. And I, to further highlight that, that uh, what Ben's talking about, that constant contact with the employees makes them comfortable enough to knock on his office door and say, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Whatever's going on. Yeah, your grandmother's sick. You have a child that needs to go down to children's because they're having an issue go. It's, that's not even a question. I have children. We have children. I mean, it, to us, family is everything. If you don't have any time to spend with them, then what are you doing with your life, really? I mean, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a big thing for, for us. We spend a ton of time. I mean, one of my kids is working here right now. He's, you know, he's in the, he's back. In the back inspecting parts of Mary. <laughs> so, um, and they would both be here, except for my oldest is at a STEM camp right now. So, um, we, you know, we, we foster that relationship with our employees and we want them to foster that relationship with their own families because my belief is that families and a strong family system helps everything, the economy, future adults. I mean, everybody wants to have uh, well-behaved children that are respectful and that can offer something to society. And so I just, I want that for everyone, including myself, so. Robin, what do you think of that? I love the family's important. I too have children. Bob has children. Bob has grandchildren. So we all have to um, navigate as best as we can to try to accommodate our families while we're working. And that's very nice that you are so accommodating to do that to them. I mean, um, what would you say? You know, you're talking about young people now. What would you say to maybe kids in high school right now that are thinking of a career path, that are not sure what they want to do. And they, you know, how do they get into manufacturing? Should they get into manufacturing? What advice do you have for that? I think, and I've had this conversation as a lot, as a result of a lot of um, business to education relationships. And one of the things we struggle with is I never want to suggest to a parent not to send their children to college. And I think that that is related to several things. One is people my age perceive that college is the route that you have to go through to get to success. And it's difficult to be someone that would suggest to a parent that perhaps their children going to college is not the, the right vehicle. But I see in my own industry, a large portion of jobs that could be filled by kids with a very quick learning curve 
that would lead to a very strong job in the future. Um, you know, I see a lot of children, even myself when I was in college, no offense to you guys, but a lot of kids with communication degrees, political science degrees, history degrees, and I say that because I have one of those, um, don't have uh, an end to their means. So they want to get a degree, they want to graduate because that's what their mom told them, that's what a guidance counselor had told them, because nobody had instructed them that there was a career path outside of what the, the, the norm was. And when I look at this scenario, I think we have to overcome this preconceived notion of being less than. And once we obtain that goal, then we can convince kids that going out into the workforce and learning in our circumstance, a, a batch operation job, or in Eric Wolf's circumstance, uh, someone who basically sets up the presses, um, those are sophisticated positions that require a, a long apprenticeship um, and lead to very good jobs at that point that would have very little debt. I, I wanna kind of expand upon that if I, if I may, is, it, is that all right? Okay, um, so Ben has done multiple um, presentations at the high school for you know, manufacturing and things like that. Um, he regularly does that, he uh, taught a class on the on economics for our, our youngest um, one of his classes um, last year. Um, I myself have a lot of contact with the high school. Um, I'm four years in every single year teaching the mock trial. I'm the coach for that. Um, I also uh, this past year did the women's rocks event. So for me, I can bring in sort of both aspects. So they they really like that. I, I have this manufacturing experience from owning this business and working here and the familiarity with it, just even growing up in it. And also I'm an attorney. So it's, for them, it, I guess they really picked my brain in ways that I didn't anticipate that they would because some kids, um, you know, come in and say, well, I definitely wanna do this. I definitely wanna be an attorney. I definitely wanna be a doctor. And it's great to have those dreams as a kid. Um, and then, you know, when I start talking to them and telling them about what it takes to do that, or, you know, just, the amount of stress and things like that in my own practice. Um, I think that's something that <laughs> kids a lot of times don't get to ask people one-on-one, -on -one. they don't know about. And I can tell you that leaving law school, I mean, they don't really teach you how to practice law, they teach you how to interpret the law. So then you get thrown into the fire and that's a whole nother thing. Manufacturing is so different. You learn every detail from the time that you start and you become a professional Within several months, usually, these guys are, you know, they know how to operate the furnaces. And I mean, they're, that is amazing. I mean, it's, and it's so much quicker, faster income, higher payback. You're working less hours than an attorney. <laughs> you, you have more flexibility if you find the right company. Um, so these are the kinds of things that I always talk to the, the high school kids about, because I feel like it's just, it's an, it's eye-opening for them to hear things from me from both sides um you know the yin and the yang if you will um but some of them you know definitely still want to go to law school and some of them think hey i didn't realize that jobs like that even existed because their parents didn't know that or don't know that so how, how do you teach something that you don't know you can't um so just broadening their um you know, ideas in terms of what they can do. Um, like he said, it's not a less than position. It's actually a very impressive position. We have guys over there that know how to do things that um, 
I could never do, that I have not learned how to do and I probably won't learn how to do. Um, but it's, it's just, uh, it's so important to educate um, high school, you know, adolescents, even young adults on what is available because I don't think that they understand. I think, yeah, that, that, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was gonna say to expound on that again, I think one of the other things that we specifically in this area have difficulty with is how do you convince a school and a guidance counselor to tell kids not to go to college? You know, how does the guidance counselor with a straight face go to someone's family and say, this is a great opportunity for your son and he probably shouldn't go to college. It's almost like we count on the children to come up with that decision on their own without being given the opportunity to grow into that. Um, you know, Gina was saying that our, our oldest son is currently at a STEM camp in this area. And one of the things that they did is they took them to Dubois Penn State to sort of look at, you know, part of their engineering program. They took them to American Axle to see part of what American Axle does so well. And the, the opportunity is given to them through this camp. And I know that a lot of our schools are giving that opportunity to people and to children to be able to see what, what's out there. But I think the difficulty that we face is convincing guidance counselors to convince parents that there are alternate paths. That's the struggle. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that increase, uh, whatever, whatever can be done to increase awareness, to educate, to enlighten, the students to introduce them because they don't know what they don't know. Guidance counselors, the same. The more opportunities and and uh, commend both of you for taking time out of your busy work um, schedules to go into the schools and participate and get involved. Uh, that's awesome. And um, the more that that happens, the better for, uh, and maybe together collectively, you know, we can shift things. I know we spent at the NWRC um, a lot of effort and energy trying to, uh, with that uh, awareness and education, as best we can contribute to the, to be part of the solution, I should say, because it's going to take a lot of different parts to, 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 to shift this. Um, so you talked a little bit about your family. Uh, I, I, I want to find out about the black belt and, and does it carry over to the kids at this point? What's happening? I started martial arts when I was a, a very young man, um, very young child, I guess. My father had pushed me into it, and it was sort of a love that I had. I wasn't very, very good at um, your your typical sports, basketball. I wasn't tall enough. Football, I wasn't big enough. Uh, baseball, I wasn't bored enough. And for those reasons, I sort of found myself looking for something else to do. And my father sort of shepherded me into this and he did it with me. And it was a tremendous bonding experience between my father and I. We participated every Tuesday and every Thursday in, in practice in the evenings. And then every Saturday, uh, my father would take me to meets. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized what an actual sacrifice that was. Um, I don't know because I wasn't a swimmer or a wrestler, but everyone that I know in this area is, and I place it very akin to that, which is as a parent, you go to a gymnasium and you sit all day. Um, and now that I look back, I realize how much my father gave to afford me the opportunity to do that. And I find myself in a similar scenario, doing similar things with my own children. Um, and I guess it gives me also a spin on the importance of this familial relationship 
that I have with my own children as well as others have with their children. And I think that's a big part of why we push um, to enable people to have that same type of a role. So that way it's forward facing that look, I'm, I'm a husband and a father first, I'm an employee somewhere else. And, and to me, that's the most important thing to make sure that people are not only well-rounded, but also happy. And as I heard earlier, uh, it does make a difference, not just for those individuals and that family, but for the community as well. It makes sure. a difference on, 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 the, uh, on the entire community. Um, you, um, you, we're going we're gonna to shift a little bit here because we always like to have some fun and tie in uh, the kitchen. Uh, so we're going to do that now because I do know that, uh, that you both like to, uh, you enjoy, I should say, time in the kitchen at home. Uh, you've got a family. I'm sure there, there are things you do as a family uh, related to what you prepare and how you eat and, and as a family. And we want to hear a little bit about that. We want to hear about a favorite recipe. And I believe both of you uh, like cooking, even maybe at the same time. So uh, share, please. My favorite recipe is bolognese sauce made by my wife. And I'm gonna throw that out there right away because she probably doesn't know that. So that's an industry secret, a family secret, but it's the truth. And I'll turn this over to her and she can handle the rest of it. Now, wait a second, before, before we do that, just one moment, we are also in the process as we go through this podcast series, we're gonna collect these best recipes and publish a little cookbook for the good of whatever. We'll come up with that where it ends up. But my point though is being both of you being attorneys, just so you know, you're disclosing your secret recipe sauce. <laughs> It will get republished, so. Wait, are you recording this? <laughs> so I'm Italian, so any Italian food I make, and then he pretty much makes everything else. Um, and we do everything in the kitchen together. That's where we we sort of brainstorm. I like to have a glass of wine when I'm brainstorming. <laughs> and so does he. So we usually, you know, at night, we tend to eat a little bit later just because, um, kids activities and you know everything so uh when everybody gets settled down in the house i take care of the dogs and then we go into the kitchen and we just start talking and making whatever was on our mind that day or whatever we have and we cook every night cook almost every night, every night yeah. yeah yeah and our kids are involved too and that gives them a lot of opportunity to participate in adult decisions and adult discussions regarding our business. Um, we spend a lot of time going back and forth, even after work, generally, like she said, over our kitchen island. And that's where a lot of our discussions happen. And they're part of that then, you know, there's a lot of who, what, when, where, why, and how, you know, they're, they're asking a lot of questions. And I think that that's important from a young age for them, them to get it and be part of it. Um, but it's something we both absolutely love. Well, I can tell okay. you that, uh, you know, raising three sons with my wife, uh, she made a big deal of us eating as a family almost every night. It was, you know, once in a while you go out, but when, you know, it, for the most part, it was us eating as a family. So I get what you're saying. And, and uh, that's, uh, I think that's today more important than, than ever before. So let's hear about a sauce. Now, let me ask, oh, you have the wine, do you have music playing? Do you just talk? What, what, what's going on? Generally music in the background um, and yep. then a glass of wine and just talking, you know, that's, that's, that's really important. And you, you hit it right in the head. We definitely sit down. We have dinner together. There's no baseball hats at the dinner table, that type of thing. There's no electronics. 
Um, we ask a lot of questions. It affords a lot of opportunities for kids to answer. We try to be open-ended in what we ask. Um, how was your day? Tell me something fun that happened today. Tell me something that wasn't fun that happened today. You know, just to give them an opportunity to open up and ask questions. And I find that by us asking them questions, they in turn ask more of us. And it leads to a better discussion. Okay, go ahead. I want to hear about the dish. I want to hear about your favorite dish. So do you want to? No, go ahead. Bolognese sauce. So, it's my favorite. So if you can pick your own. <laughs> That's probably my favorite too. Unfortunately, I hate to say that. Um, so it, um, you want me to actually talk about the preparation? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, tell us. So it's a beef and pork mix, as long as I can get them both ground in, in a healthy way from one of our, um, either one of our restaurants or, or, or the local butcher. Um, you know, um, cook that down in some olive oil and then we use the Fermano um, whole tomatoes, um, run those through with your hands, clean hands and pull out the stems and we mash those up. The kids like to help do that. Um, it's onion. Fennel is probably one of the secret ingredients. Most people say they don't like fennel, mm. but fennel sauteed down creates a whole different base for um, the sauce. Um, garlic, basil, all of the regular Italian herbs. I usually put um, tricolor peppers in as well. Um, and it, it cooks for a while. So most everything sort of breaks down um, and instead of, in lieu of meatballs, because I've always had um, just, I feel like sometimes they can be very messy. Um, so my preference is to have it all sort of broken up in the sauce. So that's, I've been making it like that since I learned how to cook. <laughs> um, it's a hearty sauce. It's definitely a hearty sauce, but um, there's just a couple of small things that I do to it. One of the things is instead of adding salt, I add a dash of soy sauce because that gives it more complexity and flavor. Oh. Actually, one of our friends, um, close friends who works for us um, is a chef and he um, gave me that as a tip. I was adding salt the one day and he said, why don't you just add something else? And I said, what? It's I need salt. I need salt for the dish. And he went into my refrigerator, pulled it out, and put Cuts. a couple of dashes in and I tasted it and I thought that's actually better than just the salt. <laughs> So the, the little bit of soy sauce, which I know is not Italian, but it really changes the flavor in such a uh, really just complex way. And then the fennel is something that a lot of people tell me they don't like, but when they have it, they they love it. So just different that. complexities of flavor. I'm good with that. You never know too, where those um, secret ingredients come from either. Uh, here, just a, a friend happens to be at the house while you're making the sauce. You just mm -hmm. never know where these tidbits of uh, gold are going to come from. Yeah, and I, I actually have a sauce that uh, uses fennel um, that I uh, mix with the tomatoes, as you described, and the olive oil and the onion and and mm -hmm. and, and olives uh, as it's a kind of a Mediterranean sauce that we put over um, sea bass and it's like awesome, you know, and it goes over pasta if you want it to, but it's this uh, really, a, really nice. The fennel does break down nice. Um, so uh, thanks for the extra tip on the soy sauce. You know, usually somebody leaves out that one little extra tip, you know? So let me ask you, Gina, is it perfected or do you, are you the type that just keeps trying to make it a little bit better or do you, you pretty much sold? This is it. 
I think it's perfected, but it always comes down for me to the quality of the meat because that's the that's the whole base. So if if you know if you have sort of an off year with either your cow or your you know your hog that you bought whatever sometimes that can change it a little bit but i feel like we we are able to adjust the flavor enough that it's pretty much spot on every time now she I does heard three things i'm go ahead she does three things uh and i assume that this is probably true of most italian cooks number one she makes in large enough batches that i can feed the entire neighborhood number two she doesn't write a single thing down so even though there's a process, it's hard to process uh, troubleshoot because nothing ever gets written down. And three, it has to take a very, very, very long time. So it gets cooked for a day. Yes, but it, it's wonderful, and 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 that's that's what's endearing to me. And generally, she can do it based on taste, uh, and and that's impressive to me. I picture you know grandma doing the same thing. Sunday gravy. Yeah, Sunday gravy. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I like to tie back to some of the, uh, the lingo from the manufacturing world, you know, it's with true. regards to batch and regards to, uh, you know, it's not, you don't, you don't have a recipe, so you can't go back and, and, and uh, measure it or change things as easily. Do you have any advice for anybody that uh, a young manufacturer that might be looking into owning their own business in manufacturing, you know, taking that leap of faith? Do you have any advice for them? Don't be afraid if you work hard. That's that's the best advice. Um, it takes absolute devotion to what you're doing to get to the point in your craft uh, where you can succinctly say, I understand what I'm doing. The conventional wisdom is that it takes 10,000 hours at anything to become an expert. And I believe that it takes every minute of that to get to that point. But if you're willing to reinvest in yourself and continually be there, then you'll have the ability to do that. If you're the type of person that finds yourself skirting responsibility and trying to avoid it when things get hard, then follow your gut. It's not the right place for you. There's a lot of risk involved. But a lot of that can be put aside by working through it. Don't be afraid to be, I, I hate to say this. We, we always say it though. Don't be afraid to be the dumbest person in the room. Uh, I say that all the time. There's so much truth to that because if you think or you want to act like you know everything, you'll, you'll never know learn anything. We both came at this from law. So when we took over, the conventional wisdom was, what does an attorney from Brookville know about powdered metal? And the short answer to that question is not a single thing. But what I do know is that I have the ability to learn. So I asked a lot of questions. I had no problems, again, like she said, being the dumbest person in the room, asking rudimentary questions that I knew everybody already knew the answer to, but I didn't. And I just would continue to ask and ask and ask and ask. And that enabled me to understand. And once I understand something, then I can help create. Um, and I would bet that you encourage your employees to ask questions to, you know, don't, 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 don't hold things in. If you're, if you're in a group, you're talking about yeah. something in one of your huddle meetings, hundred percent, hundred percent. And we say that all the time at the meetings, you know, is don't be afraid because um, you're not going to learn if you don't know just by keeping your mouth shut, you're not going to come up with an idea. 
Um, the best way is just admitting when you don't know something. And sometimes that allows other people to put their guard down. And instead of a room full of know-it-alls, then I have a room full of people that are willing to work together to achieve a common goal, which is to be better than we were the day before. One of the things we hope uh, when we uh, wrap up a podcast uh, conversation is to uh, is to connect the, the 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 business side to the food side, and and in some cases to you know um, life outside of work. Uh, and you know, I can I already have some notes I've, I've taken along the way here that I uh, there's so much consistency between how you um, manage and operate your businesses and your teams and encourage them and communicate with them to how you do that at home, in the kitchen, with the family, around uh, the dinner for the evening. Uh, all of that uh, is, is you, you pretty much have answered that, that typical question that I ask uh, at the end of these sessions. And um, it's been enlightening. I, I think there's so many great things you're doing and it's thrilling to know that uh, for the area that you, you have uh, right there in, in Elk County, uh, what the contributions your businesses and your employees at those businesses are are having and experiencing and you're driving it and it's got to make you feel good. We're proud of what we've done so far. We're proud you of the should. growth and, and we just keep trucking on. We're just going to keep doing what we do best and doing it together makes it easier. So well, you should be proud, and, and I, I don't think I need to encourage you, but to keep inspiring others and informing them and making them aware and, and, uh, and, being, and role modeling. So my, my last question that I have is, you know, uh, what's some of the best advice you got and who gave it to you? Uh, where, where do you get that inspiration, that knowledge, that learning from that has helped you to be successful? I can, I can answer that one for sure. And the best advice that I've received came from my neighbor, close friend, and business associate, uh, Bill Brock, who's the CEO of Straub. And Bill had told me that a rising tide raises all boats. And that's a quote that essentially comes from John F. Kennedy. And when he initially had told me that, I think the first vision that I had was that, that I was supposed to be the boat, right? And that as things got better and the economy got better, we would all do better. And that didn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, it, it made sense on a on a on a, a macro level, but it didn't make sense to me on a micro level. And what he actually meant by that, and through several conversations and a couple of years and some years in manufacturing, I came to realize that what he meant was that I was to be the tide, and that as long as we're doing things in a positive way, then everyone around will do more positive, and we'll all do better overall. And that could be um, me as a business leader in my own organization. It could be me as a business leader in, in our greater community. It could be me writing letters or having phone calls with our larger leaders that then are influencing uh, greater goods, or it could be something as simple as a conversation between me and my child. But that advice that he gave me really, really stuck with me. And it's something that, that helps drive my decisions at this point uh, as we sit here today. Once again, we have some great takeaways of ingredients for success. Let's begin with communications. And we heard how important it is to communicate, to create a, an opportunity for employees to communicate, providing them an environment that they feel comfortable and openness and accessibility on the part of the managers. Next, as Ben puts it, 
simply don't be afraid to be the dumbest person in the room and encourage employees to ask questions. And think about that when you're onboarding new employees and even those that have been with you for a while. Next, proof today that competitors can work together. Yes, keep your trade secrets apart, but look for opportunities to work together for the good of each company, for the good of the industry, and for the good of the community. And fourth, manufacturers all seem to be facing the workforce challenges. And here's an opportunity for industry to get more involved and provide awareness and education to teachers, students, guidance counselors, and even parents about the diverse and rewarding career opportunities in manufacturing. And, you know, when we asked Ben his favorite uh, or greatest advice, he quickly turned to the quote from John F. Kennedy, a rising tide lifts all boats. And think about it. If more of this is going on, there's going to be a greater opportunity and benefit for all involved. And last, don't forget the soy sauce in place of salt in your favorite sauce. Uh, what a great conversation. Uh, we really appreciate uh, you taking the time and, and, and contributing as you have to this, uh, the, this topic. And uh, uh, we wish you the very best. Thank Perfect. you so much for having us. We, we appreciate the opportunity as well. Sure thing. So Robin, I think podcast is adjourned. Thanks for joining this episode of Recipes for Manufacturing Success, brought to you by NWIRC. Serving manufacturers in 13 counties of Northwest and North Central Pennsylvania.